the principle that the majority have a right to rule the minority practically resolves all government into a mere contest between two bodies of men as to which of them shall be masters and which of them slaves. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am so happy to be reunited with Isaac Morehouse. It's been a couple years since uh, I met him at the IHS retreat. He is the CEO of Crash, the career launch platform, and the founder of Praxis, a startup apprenticeship program. Isaac, where is the best place to find your work? Uh, probably just IsaacMorehouse.com. You can you can find the the companies I'm involved with, the books and podcasts, and all the different stuff I'm I'm up to. Or Twitter at Isaac Morehouse. I'm very active there as well. That's awesome. So I uh, was looking through your podcast and saw that you did a straight read of a number of uh, things that I was uh, really interested in, some of my favorite works on libertarianism, one of which was The Obviousness of Anarchy by John Hasness. Please give me the thesis of that essay and why you think it's so important. That essay is one of the absolute, I mean, it is a gem. It is one of the absolute best essays on, I won't even say on anarchism, on libertarianism. Uh, and I'll get into what I mean by that in a minute. And I, I reread it like every, I used to like every year, it's probably every couple of years now, but because when I first came across it, it opened my eyes to what I would call Hayekian anarchism, uh, which is, which is, you know, it's an understanding of <clears throat> the great game that's being played is the conflation of the concept of government with the concept of, of governance or the concept of law with the concept of order. And that's a very Orwellian thing. And, it, and I think that limits our thinking so much. And so when I, when I, you know, sort of came to libertarianism and then I'm following all the great, awesome libertarian arguments, both economic and moral to their logical conclusions, and it's dragging me more and more into anarchism, I'm feeling very uncomfortable about this. And I have the, the classic, the classic garbage, you know, back when I was a teenager, like, but, but who would build the roads? But how would things like the brain's inability to imagine, like, how would it work? And that's what this essay, The Obviousness of Anarchy, really does is it it makes you realize that that is an absolutely absurd question because it's already working. So the, the 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 nutshell version of the obviousness of anarchy is anarchy's all around us. In fact, anarchy is the backdrop of everything. All the order we see around us, the heavy lifting is being done by non-government institutions, norms and ideas. And the order that we appreciate and enjoy, everything from property rights to the fact that people don't walk around naked in the shopping mall, that's not because of law. That's because of society, which precedes law. And, 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 and Hasnes says in, in one of those essays, uh, logically and historically, society precedes the state, right? And it must, it must. You can't organize into a state unless you're something that is, has the ability to organize already, right? And so- that concept that like anarchy is the backdrop and the order of, I mean, right? Like you can look at language, you can look at money, these emergent things. And that's why I call it Hayekian, the, the understanding of kind of emergent order. And you realize social norms, you know, uh, property rights, common law itself, which is what most of our legal system is. Legislation gets tacked on after the fact and takes the credit for it. So uh, a great example, I always use the, the you know, naked in the shopping mall example. I, I used to give lectures at Foundation for Economic Education in different places. And I would always ask the students, you know, how many of you, if indecent exposure laws were overturned today, how many of you would go running naked in the shopping mall tomorrow? Of course, nobody would. There's always some kid that raises his hand being a jackass, you know, oh, I would, whatever. but nobody would, right? Nobody would. And I say, why not? And then people start to think all of a sudden, why wouldn't I? Well, I'd be embarrassed. There's social norms around it. I'd probably get kicked out of the mall because they have private property uh, rights. There's mall cops that are private. Uh, you know, my parents might get upset with me. My friends wouldn't want to be around me. And, and, you, and they all of a sudden realize that law is not what's preventing people from running around naked in the shopping mall at all. And, and, and what happens is these, these, these things arise, these, these norms and institutions, 
they arise without the state. And then the state comes later, codifies it so they can have a big ceremony where they announce, I passed this law that does something that's already being done and that everybody likes and supports. And I'm going to take credit from here on out for this bad thing never happening again. Child labor laws are another great example. You don't ever get child labor laws in really poor countries, or at least you don't get them enforced. You get them once child labor is all but eradicated because people don't want their children to have hard labor. That only is a, That's a matter of survival. And once it's already eradicated, I mean, you can look at the statistics of child labor. It's, it basically has disappeared and then child labor laws are introduced to make it illegal. And all they really do is make it illegal for the tiny, tiny fraction of very poor people who are still doing that. If you go to a very, very poor country and try to enact child labor laws and really enforce them, you'll cause people to die. You'll cause them to starve and die, right? Because they're doing that because they have to. So society tends to take care of these things in a very, the market does in a very subtle ways and the law takes credit for it. And once the law is passed within a generation, if that, it may be even less, we forget we forget that it, there didn't used to be a law and that if there wasn't a law, there wouldn't be people, you know, this Hobbesian idea that without the state, everyone would be murdering each other all the time is just absolutely absurd. Like I think Hobbes is probably the single most damaging uh, political philosopher, um, you know, in the last several hundred years because it's this idea, if there weren't the Leviathan, this great mythical authority everything would be utter chaos. And that's what the obviousness of anarchy is pointing out. That like the, the main line that the book, that the essay comes back to over and over again is look around. Well, how would we, how would we take care of this? Look around. How's it already being done? The vast majority of law enforcement is private already today. Law public law enforcement didn't even exist until the 1860s. Was everyone murdering each other for the first hundred years of this country's history constantly? No. In fact, it got worse after public <laughs> police forces were introduced. So just this idea that like it's already there, it's the backdrop is just so mind blowing to me. Yeah, there is a uh, great article by Alfred Kuzan called, Do We Ever Really Get Out of Anarchy? Yes! And and you and I didn't talk about it, so I got to plug. No, this nobody, one. nobody ever references that article. It's so obscure. I'm like so excited that you know that article. It's so underappreciated because it is a very, it's a great academic way of saying who watches the watchers. In other words, if we as a society can't, you know, really uh, organize by ourselves, sort of ignorant, corrupt, and barbaric, what we need is a state. Well, first of all, a state is just a subset of the very humans you're saying are evil, corrupt, stupid, and ignorant, and, you know, can't be trusted with any authority. Who regulates them? Eventually, you have to justify a world government because countries are in a state of anarchy. But even then, who checks the world government? Who gave them the license to be a world government? Who gives people a license to get licenses? So uh, it's not that uh, there's no there, there's a system of you know credibility and regulation, and then there's no credibility and no regulation. What you instead have is voluntarily funded competing credibility agencies or a coercively funded monopoly one, and. It's what Hans Hoppe says is the greatest contradiction. Monopolies are terrible, and we need a big government to stop monopolies. Also, the state should have a monopoly on taxation, law, conscription, war, um, the uh, currency, uh, and then, then they just list all the things the state should have a monopoly on. It's it's so wild when you – it's like once your eyes have been opened, you can't, you can't see the world the old way again, and it seems so absurd. That you ever did like like take gun control i mean i'm i'm flummoxed and blown away when i see people like we need the government to make sure that you know nobody can own guns or everybody has to register blah 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 and you think about what that means the single institution that has murdered like exponentially more murdered raped imprisoned you know exponentially more people than any other institution you can add up organized crime and, you know, petty theft and individual, you know, mass shootings and every non-government type of violence in world history, add them all up, pop in the bucket compared to what governments have done to their own people, not let alone what they've done in war to other people. And you think that entity, you want to entrust 100% of the tools of, of violence, of self-defense and of, you know, initiation, you want to entrust them with, with all of it and give people nothing. 
this entity that is the most murderous entity in the world. Like, it's so absurd to me. Even if you hate guns and you hate violence, why would you concentrate them in the hands of the most brutal assholes in history? It's, it's, it's wild. So, so that's where I think it's really that conceptual game, that, it's that Orwellian thing of government is, government is not a fact of nature. And I think that is the thing that must, that we must make clear and understand that people have this idea that it's a necessary evil. They already know that it's evil. Nobody actually likes government. They know that it's shitty. They might does things for them, but the concept itself, nobody's like, yay, it's a necessary evil is what people believe. Once you realize that it's not necessary, that's where the real power comes in. And you have to understand the reason it's not necessary is because there are other institutions and mechanisms that are already doing the things that you believe government's doing. So, so government is a bad belief. Governance is a necessity of human nature. Like it's just wired into the fabric of the world that governance, a mechanism, mechanisms of solving disputes, even, even hierarchies, people becoming leaders in certain areas and having a higher, you know, specialization. These things are, these things are all part of the fabric of the, the world, the way society is, is built. But if you can conflate government, which is an unnecessary belief and, and conflate it with governance, which is a necessary part of, of all society, then you've won already. You just have the two terms interchangeable in people's brains. And when you say no government, they can't think otherwise than no governance. They, those, those two things have been so conflated. And so the separation of those concepts, I think, is the single most important thing to reduce the role of the state and the role of violence and people's preponderance to look for it to solve problems. Exactly. Uh, giving the government a monopoly on guns to solve violence. That that really is wild. It's like saying uh, husbands are bad, therefore O.J. Simpson should control uh, all uh, men who get married. And parents <laughs> are bad, therefore Casey Anthony should be everyone's babysitter. And I, I mean, it, it's so ridiculous. I can't believe anyone is. Well, that's why they get you in uh, in the schooling systems. And we need people like Praxis to uh, to help us get out. The uh, second thing you and I spoke about was also by John Hasness called The Myth of the Rule of Law. What is the thesis of The Myth of the Rule of Law and what lessons did you learn from it? Man, this one, this one is one of those that um, it's not really that valuable to like, let's say a, a liberal part, like a modern liberal, because um, they're sort of, they, they already, they already sort of don't think about the rule of law as some, you know, uh, ironclad uh, thing. And it's not, a, it's not an altar they worship at conservatives and like constitutionalist libertarians, um, you know, Ron Paul types very often, Justin Amash types very often, um, can really get caught up in this idea that if only we abide by the rule of law, if only we get the laws right and we enforce them properly and abide by them. And they're very, very focused on, you know, the Constitution, we got to abide by the Constitution. And I think what what this essay, The Myth of the Rule of Law, is making clear is that there is never an escape from the rule of individuals. When you have a state, I mean, now, now absent a state, you're going to have the rule of you know, sort of individuals in a competitive market process, right? So an individual still has to make decisions. They're the only ones that can make decisions. Say you had competing, you know, competing protection agencies, some CEO somewhere has to make a decision about something, an employee has to, but they face the competitive pressures of the market. So in the over over the over time, the process is going to have a better outcome than the state. But it but it's still the rule of individuals within a market context. The rule of law when people are like, well, you have to have a government as long as it's, you know, sticks to the constitution, then it's going to be fine. It's not possible. That's what Hasness is pointing out. It's not possible. Forget about whether it's desirable. Sure. Maybe it's desirable. Maybe if you get, if you have some perfect definition of, you know, whatever the second amendment, and it's like somehow this piece of paper can constrain everyone. Maybe that's desirable. I don't know. It's hard to even imagine because it's not possible. So that's the whole point. He's like, look, it's not possible. And he walks you through some of the things that you might think off the top of your head are very simple, very common sense. 
okay, here's a case of, you know, somebody doing something, does it violate the first amendment? And it's like impossible to come up with an answer that, that, that you can even agree with yourself on, let alone two different people can agree with. Right. And he does this over and over again. And he's showing, he's trying to reveal that you, it is a misplaced hope to say, if we just make a piece of paper, I mean, any libertarian who thinks that the government today in the United States is in any way bigger or more intrusive than what was intended by the founders have already refuted the, the power of the rule of law by admitting that, right? Like, well, they wrote it down. They put it in a constitution. They got the rule of law and that it's most of the stuff in there sounds pretty good at first glance. Certainly the bill of rights sounds pretty good. None of it, none of it's ever, it doesn't constrain anyone. And, you know, has it gotten worse? Probably, but it never did even in the beginning. I mean, you can go back to the earliest presidents. They were doing all kinds of this shit. They were throwing people in prison for writing bad articles about them. And, you know, I mean, like, this is like from like the earliest times. You can't constrain human actors with words on paper because it requires human actors to interpret and enforce them, period. And so once you realize that, once you're disabused of the notion that you can be saved by better laws or better interpretation of laws or better enforcement of laws, then you have to say, well, what can we look to? And that's where you ask, what process is more likely to lead to better outcomes? One with mission and no consequences for police officers, you know, who have legal immunity or for, you know, judges or whatever, where, where, where politicians can, you know, concentrate benefits, disperse costs, or one where there's competition, where there's a more competitive marketplace. And you look at the process itself and say, which one um, is more likely to, to give us the, the, the more peaceful outcomes, the more prosperous outcomes. And so I think it's really powerful to help people, the conservative leaning types or those who came from conservatism as myself, like I used to be very much in this camp. It was like, just, you know, just follow the constitution, you know, or like, let's just get, you know, whatever. Um, that doesn't mean anything at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's always going to be political determinations. So you have to remove politics. Changing the laws is not going to cut it. Reducing the, the and, and putting th more things in the marketplace um, the option you have. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's a uh, really important insight getting into, you know, voluntarily funded competing organizations, because for all the regulation that the state says we need to regulate the entire economy and every aspect of life. Well, the vital regulation that the free market has that the state doesn't is the freedom to disassociate with bad actors. So therefore, it's it's not even like a level playing ground cost benefit analysis. There really is one uh, one strength the voluntarist libertarians have that the statists really uh, d do not. And uh, I, I think that really is uh, the heart of what we're uh, disagreeing with them about uh, here. The other one you mentioned was Human Action by Mises. Very short book for some uh, bedtime reading. What was <laughs> the most important takeaway from Human Action by Ludwig von Mises? Oh, my gosh. Really hard. That book, I've read it cover to cover, and then I've read sections of it many, many times. Um, I mean, to me, that's like, that's like the best book in all the social sciences to me. It's just, it's so good. It's so clear. It's so well-written. It's so, so how do I get, what is the main takeaway from it? I mean, I, I guess the main takeaway is probably more methodological than anything. And it's that there is a science of human action that you can, that you can understand and build from. Um, and, and what, and what does that mean? I, I mean, especially now with the prominence of like what are called behavioral economists, it's very, very popular to say, oh, well, if people were perfectly rational robots, then we could say we could make predictions or we could understand things about the way the economy works. But people are crazy. They're irrational. They have biases. Therefore, you can't understand anything about how they're going to behave, which is, which is, there's a ring of truth to it because what they're re what they're reacting against is a very uh, cartoonish neoclassical model of homo economicus, which is sort of like, you know, oh, people will maximize their like money profit in all situations. 
Um, and it doesn't take into account really anything larger, any other preferences. Um, and a lot of those models are, are ridiculous and they, and they don't play out in the real world and they get criticized for good reason. What, what Mises says in human action, he establishes economics on a rock solid foundation that I don't think anyone else has come close to doing, which is let's start with only what we can prove with a priori, as he says, uh, with just reason alone, um, before we go start looking at the empirical data and observations, let's start and let's, let's lay out the fundamental axioms that are, that are provable with logic alone. So, you know, uh, man acts, that's the fun. That's the first premise. That's the first axiom in the book. Humans take purposeful action. And if you try to refute that, um, it's self-reinforcing trying to refute it is a purposeful action, right? You can't, you can't escape it. Great. People are like, yeah, so what? That's, that's a tautology, right? But, but he builds from that. When people act, they choose whatever that is according to their own subjective preferences, their highest valued action. Now, that right there is really, really powerful. It doesn't say anything about whether or not they're misinformed, whether they might change their mind later, but by the fact that they chose something, it reveals to us that they believed choosing that thing was preferable to all of the other things they could have done or could have chosen in that moment. And as you see, like from this, you start to get, you basically, you get supply and demand curves. Eventually you're a few steps away from supply and demand curves because you get the, the concept of marginal utility, right? You choose your first best option first, and then your second best option, and then your third best option. And you get, you know, you, you can kind of build the basic laws of economics on this. Now it's very, very like, People will say, well, so what? That stuff is so stripped down that it's not capable of telling you very much about the real world because the real world is not, um, you know, is not ceteris paribus. It's not all things equal. There's all kinds of other out there. But the same people that will tell you that, you know, like the idea that you can't have interpersonal value comparisons. So mm. because value is subjective, I can't compare, um, you know, how much utility I gain versus you gain from, you know, let's say, uh, let's say somebody, you know, paints a picture and, um, gives it to us as a gift. And if we say, well, well, the one of us that values it more should get it. There's no way we can make that determination. It's not possible. Now we can have a market where we each bid for it and pay for it. And then we can determine who values it more in dollars. It's not necessarily going to tell us because we each value dollars at different amounts, right? So people will say, well, this is all tautological. What's the big deal? And then they'll go on to create an entire field called welfare economics that tries to maximize the utility of all these people, which they just admit. I mean, I would have debates with people back in the day about, they'd be like, I'd, I'd, I'd lay out these axioms and they'd be like, yeah, of course, I agree with all of them. They're all, they're all tautologies. They're just, so what? And then they'd be like, so I'm studying welfare economics. And I'm like, that's not possible. You just said <laughs> you can't. The whole thing is bullshit. So I think that's what's so great about Mises is like, and that's why economists don't like the Austrian school largely. As, as Hayek said, it's, it, it demonstrates to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. It's very humbling. It really tells you like, nope, you can't make that claim. Can't make that claim either. You can make these very humble set of claims. They're very powerful. But then from here on out, it's a lot of, you know, um, that's when you get into the actual empirical part and start looking at what's happening in the world and try to understand it. Things can't violate these very, very few laws, but when they appear to violate them, you got to figure out what is going on that you're missing. And it's a very, it's a humbling task about knowing what you're wrong about rather than having these sweeping predictions that you can make. Exactly. And of course you see this on both sides. It's okay for us to invade the country, kill civilians, install a dictator, because in 10 years, the people will be better off. Uh, okay, first of all, you don't know that. Second of all, the intelligence is probably based on a lie. And third, you're not going to bear the cost of funding it, or you won't go to jail if it goes bad. So you have no incentive. So I remember at, uh, it's at the end of Democracy, the God That Failed, uh, Hans Hoppe said, People will sort of justify government on utilitarian grounds, which relies on interpersonal comparisons of utility, so that's scientifically impermissible. And he just dismisses the <laughs> he dismisses like the primary claim that these people make. But you see it all the time. Rokana is talking to Ben Shapiro, and Ben Shapiro's like, "So, um, the Congressional Budget Office said if the minimum wage is increased to X amount, 
that 1.4 million jobs would be lost. He goes, well, yeah, but, you know, think of all the other people that that would help without appreciating the other people who won't be able to start up a business, the oligopolies that would create, the fewer products and services people would have access to, the fewer employment opportunities, the higher prices, uh, less access to goods and services, less investment because more is being put into employees. I mean, it's it's just amazing and, and how... Is, and this is where the Austrian school is so maddening to people because even free market types of kind of the non-Austrian bent they love those sort of debates about the minimum wage and they'll come out with their own study and they'll say, well, look, the minimum wage is going to cost, you know, X number of jobs to go under. And then people will, you know, they'll debate the data or maybe they'll go a step back from that and they'll say, well, when you raise the price of something, people purchase less of it. Um, you raise the price of labor, people are going to buy, buy less labor. So more, you know, uh, low skilled labor is going to be out of jobs in a general sense without putting numbers forward. And like, Generally speaking, that's true. Generally speaking, that's the way it plays out. But what's what's so powerful uh, and maddening to others with the Austrian school is you can't really tell me what's going to happen. There's no way to know exactly what's going to happen because, again, value is subjective. So there may be some people who uh, like this is theoretically possible that if the minimum wage is raised um, and you know you're making ten bucks an hour, now I legally have to pay you fifteen. I decide because I'm a nice guy that I'd rather pay you 15 than fire you. And you say, wow, I'm so honored by this. I'm going to work harder. Like that's possible, right? And with the Austrian school, you don't have to pretend that that's not possible. But what you can say is, look, we don't know what's going to happen. But what we do know is that when you introduce the use of force, you will get an outcome that is less optimal by people's own subjective preferences than if you didn't introduce the use of force. Because I can't say to you, here's a group of people and they want to do certain things with their money. And the only way we know what they want to do with their money, we can't, we can't decide by asking them because people will say stuff that isn't true, right? Stated preferences are not very useful. We got to watch what they do. So whatever they choose to do with their money, that is what they valued most at the time of choosing. Now, we may disagree with it. We may dislike it. We may try to persuade them to do something else. But according to their own preferences, that's what created the most value for them. So them being free to choose is by definition creating the maximum value return on those resources for them individually. And therefore, if you group them into a collective and an aggregate on the whole, the minute I say that choice isn't on the kill. I have by definition reduced the value in society because now they can't choose that. I don't know how many of them would have, but I know that there is some suboptimal resource allocation because I have taken away a certain set of choices. And so now we'll never know. We know that people are not allowed to put money to, and if you take money from people and spend it on you know, a road and say, oh, look, I created more utility. It's impossible for you to know that. You can't tell me that. All we know for sure is that whatever people would have chosen freely would have maximized their utility. And now that they can't choose freely, they have less utility than they used to. That's really it. Like you can you can come up with scenarios and say it's likely that there's a lot of unemployment here because of this and these because of these laws, it's probable, but there's so many other variables. The Austrians even like strip away a lot of the fun from the other free market people who want to make like very specific claims about the exact unemployment rate that will result, you know? Yeah, the um, uh, interpersonal comparison of utilities is just so dangerous, um, and it's uh, really uh, seen in a uh, article titled or a uh, short book by Bastiat, "That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Unseen." What is the thesis and most important takeaway from "That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Unseen"? Dude, that is the book that got me hooked on economics. Um, yeah. I came across that. It was probably 2002, 2003, maybe, um, long time ago. And it was like, oh my gosh, it just blew my mind. I couldn't wait for every next chapter. What, how's he, how's he going to, how, how's he going to tell the story of this? Right. Cause like on a gut level, I was kind of a free market guy anyway. I sort of on a gut level was like, you know, I don't think government funding for, the arts is a good idea or, you know, subsidies for this or whatever. But when people will come at you with these arguments about, oh, well, look at the benefits that it creates. Um, I remember I had a professor at the time that was like, uh, 
Well, the good thing about, oh no, he said, uh, he said the old line that world war two got us out of the depression. And I remember being like blowing up a whole bunch of resources made the world more like wealthy. Like that just seemed weird, but I didn't, I didn't quite like know how to respond. So what is seen and what is unseen is the fundamental text for the economic way of thinking, the basic idea of what economics does, which is to help you understand causal relationships and see uh, exactly as the title says, what is unseen. So uh, the book opens with the broken window fallacy with, you know, the idea that somebody breaks a window and, oh, well, that's really sad, but it's actually good for the economy because now you've employed the window guy and he's got to fix the window. And Bastiat says, well, that's only what's, what's unseen. The guy who had to pay the window guy, what was he going to do with his money before? And again, he would have put it to fixing the window was not his highest valued use because he didn't need to fix it before. He would have put it to something that he valued more previous to that window being broken, which would have returned him more value, right? And like understanding the, again, the like, what would have happened? Uh, uh, Hasness uses the phrase that I've I've borrowed since then. It's like my absolute favorite phrase in in all you know sort of political philosophy and economics. Compared to what? Like mm. compared to what? Oh, wealth was created. Compared to what? Certainly not compared to if the window was never broken, because then you'd have that same amount of money that went to one guy in the hands of the original guy and it would go to someone else. And by definition, what, what he did with it, then he would have valued more. You can't create value by destroying resources, right? Like he would have had a window and instead of just having, you know, the window and no longer having the money, right? Like that simple concept. And then Bastiat goes to explain it in all different examples. He talks about subsidizing arts. He talks about trade restrictions. He talks about all kinds of, and he's so witty and like, the most clear speaking French person I've ever read. <laughs> it's, it is a phenomenal book. And Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson is basically a, an updated version of that. Mm -hmm. And I love Hazlitt, but I'm telling you, nothing comes close to Bastiat, that, that original book. And like for somebody who's kind of a normie who falls prey to sort of mainstream arguments about, well, you know, it's actually uh, building a sports stadium with tax dollars is actually good for the local economy because it stimulates the economy, right? Like, Give them Bastiat or read it yourself so you'll know how to answer them because it's just, it untangles the confusion that, um, and helps you understand why your intuition, if you think intuitively, it's like, well, taking my money to give it to a sports stadium, how is that going to make me more money? It feels weird. But when some economist is like, oh, boost the economy, we got people coming in, well, you just, you kind of get like mesmerized and Bastiat breaks the spell. Exactly. Yeah, it's the equivalent of saying, um, if the government didn't prearrange all marriages, no one would ever be married and we wouldn't be in relationships. Because let me point to all the marriages that the state has prearranged. Uh, well, yes, they have coercively arranged these. But in the absence of this coercive arrangement, you wouldn't have people sitting around expiring like the camel standing between two pails of water and just <laughs> dies and expires before he can go to one. You would have people acting voluntarily, achieving their ends with, uh, you know, any resources they acquired through original appropriation or voluntary exchange. Um Bastiat's so valuable. Did you read Economic Harmonies? Did you get through the oh, whole yeah. thing? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, I it, still haven't been, gotten through the whole thing. It's been too long. I need to reread Bastiat. It's been probably a decade since I've read. I mean, I re I, I've read pretty much everything I can get my hands on of Bastiat's. And I, I just, I love that. He's so witty. So witty. I think my my favorite individual thing, it's a short essay, The Candlemaker's Petition. It's a satirical essay. Uh, candle makers are petitioning the government to blot out the sun because it's it's unfair foreign competition for their sales of uh, of uh, candles. It's it, it's so it's so good. You know what's interesting with Bastiat, the scene in the unseen concept. I like so immersed myself in that and like got that mindset clicking that it applies in so many areas outside of what you typically think of as economics. So when I'm talking with people about schooling and, and freedom and choice in education, so many parents you'll run into will say, um, well, you know, uh, look, I was forced to go to school and I hate, but I learned this really valuable thing. 
They're, right. Therefore yeah. it was good. Yeah. And, and I'll say to them, I'll say, look, I could in my basement for a year and force you to listen to the Beatles every day, chained to the wall. You couldn't do anything else. And at the end of that time, the odds that you gained something you could not have gained without having that experience are very, very high. You'd you, learn that you would money can't buy something. you love. That, right? You, you'd learn you would, that, at least. <laughs> you would have some understanding of the Beatles or some appreciation for music or maybe just a greater appreciation for freedom after that that you couldn't have had without that experience. Does that mean that I ought to impose that experience on everyone, right? Like, Whatever experiences you had in life are so unique that the things that you have, you couldn't have had without that experience. That doesn't justify the experience being imposed on everyone else. It's absurd. What are the costs? What would have happened without that? You know, like I, I just, that justification that, you know, well, I was treated like shit by teacher. Okay. Therefore I better do it to my kids. Like <laughs> it's the seen and the unseen all over again, a different context. I use that logic uh, only with previous teachers. So when I see them marching for higher wages, I make sure to comment on all the Facebook feeds. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit is what you pricks told me uh, <laughs> 15 years ago. So you better start embracing your own principles here. Um, all right. But before I get too upset about that, the intellectuals and socialism by Friedrich Hayek. What is the main thesis and thing you learned from the intellectuals and socialism by Hayek? Man, so my, I would say the, the thing that I've been the most obsessed with in the last 20 years, uh, which is sort of my entire kind of career, professional life and intellectual life, um, has been trying to understand how social change happens. Because I'm I'm like a you know I'm a philosophical guy and I'm really interested in big ideas but like okay the ideas of freedom they're they're awesome they're they're beautiful they're compelling they 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 have so much to offer but I want more than to understand them like I want to live free and I want to maximize the ability for others to live free so how do we bring that about and so that's kind of been my my career trajectory first I was like oh well, you go into politics and I learned the hard way politics is not where you get you know social change from. And so my career trajectory and my intellectual journey sort of paralleled each other. Like I went into politics and then I discovered public choice theory at the same time and realized why <laughs> politics can't work. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> then I go into policy and like policy advocacy, sort of think tank work. And, you know, I'm kind of diving deeper and understanding more about bureaucratic. I remember Mises's bureaucracy when I read that, I was like, oh, no wonder nonprofits have such a hard time. Um, but like, as I've gone through and eventually sort of ended with entrepreneurship, but Hayek's The Intellectuals and Socialism brought the first half of understanding. And there's a second half that came later to me, which is how, how in terms of how social change happens, he lays out essentially this theory for social change that says you have this kind of it's almost like the structure of production in the economy, right, where you have capital goods that sort of. And their value is sort of imbued from the, from, I don't want to get too complex, but anyway, you have capital goods and intermediate goods and then consumer goods. In the world of ideas, you have the beliefs of the public, the popular ideas, but those are, are sort of disseminated to them through what Hayek calls secondhand dealers of ideas. And you can add additional strata to this pyramid and get more, more detailed, but secondhand dealers and ideas are sort of popularizers, spreaders of ideas, podcasters, uh, people who make TV shows and write popular books and, you know, talking heads on the news, whatever, pastors. Um, but they are getting their ideas sort of original thinkers. And, you know, in Hayek's model, there's very few original thinkers, right? John Locke has his second treatise, very, very influential, or Hobbes, as I mentioned before. Um, but no no person on the street, like in America, John Locke's ideas about property rights, like my home is my castle and, you know, the king doesn't have a right to come in. They're very much people hold those beliefs, but they don't know that they come from John Locke. They wouldn't use his terminology. They've never read John Locke. Somehow it's been tri it's trickled down. It's been imbued to them. Locke writes this treatise. A lot of nerds study it and they start teaching it in universities or whatever else and talking about it, writing books about it. And those books sort of make their way down and those eventually make it to the popular belief. And so reading Hayek's description of this sort of structure of production and ideas, it helped me identify higher leverage activities than arguing with someone on Facebook. 
and trying to convince them uh, about something. And I thought, I don't want to give a man a fish. I don't even want to teach a man to fish. I want to raise the capital to build the factories to make the rope that makes the nets that help people catch millions of fish, right? I want to be way up in the structure of production because I want maximum leverage. I've always been attracted to that. Like, what's the maximum ROI? I only live on this earth for so long. What activities are going to have the greatest impact? And so that the intellectuals and socialism helped me look at the world of ideas and say, if I can focus on maybe what Albert J. Nock would call the remnant uh, in his masterful essay, Isaiah's job, um, and those people who are disproportionately likely to be influential, either in generating ideas or in being secondhand dealers of ideas, and those ideas will influence the broader public. I'd rather focus on them than go directly to the broader public. And that's what led me to IHS. Have you read uh, The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hanson? Yes. That's just so sad. I, I I had him on my show and we talk about it, how it basically discusses the hidden motives in everyday life where as opposed to people acting rationally, what uh, eventually what they actually say is actually their conscious acting as a press secretary for their subconscious, which is giving us different motivations. The point in me mentioning that is uh, when you see, uh, you know, uh, politicians talking about things that end up coming about, you say, well, then the politician is making that change happen. Therefore, I must occupy politics in order to have said change. When, just as you said, that is not exactly how it goes. And uh, Hayek, uh, I think, does a very good job explaining it in that essay. But Robin Hanson, decades later, just comes and brings the numbers with regard to art, charity, consumption, religion, politics, and all these other fields, verifies what uh, I understood Hayek to be saying uh, many years ago. Um, let's go well, to, well, I, okay. So yeah. let, let me, let me jump on that real quick because, uh, I, I did, I loved, I loved Robin Hanson's book and I, I think I might've interviewed him about it as well. I can't, I can't remember, but, um, that book sort of is a good example of where I said Hayek gave me the first half of my understanding. And that's, and at one point I was like, cool, that's how social change happens. Okay. You got to change beliefs. And, and again, if you go back to like public choice theory, I'm very much influenced by the Overton window of political possibility, right? Like at the end of the day, and, and Mises himself says this, that like, you know, at the end of the day, there's no ruler, whether a dictator or democratically elected who can defy the beliefs of the public, not public doesn't get what they yeah. want but they get what they'll tolerate, right? They get yes. something in between what they want and what they'll tolerate, right? Like, like really shitty politicians will push it to the max of what they'll tolerate. Maybe, you know, in a better environment, they're getting something closer to what they want. Uh, now, maybe what the public wants sucks too, but, um, but they'll get what they tolerate. At the end of the day, the beliefs of the public are the binding constraint. And so I'm like, okay, great. And again, myth of the rule of law, all this stuff plays into that. It's not what's written down on law. At the end of the day, it's what politicians can get away with, period. That's what they'll do. And that's determined by what people will let them get away with. And so I'm like, great. So, so you got to change their beliefs through this structure of dealing and ideas. And after several years of working in that, I had this epiphany. And when Uber first came out, it really helped me. I was, I was like, something is missing here. I'm, I feel in my gut, like I'm overvaluing my own role in this. And my own role was to sort of raise money for and create programs for sort of the future intellectuals um, who are going to help disseminate the ideas of liberty. And I saw Uber come out and all these people start using it. And then cities start to try to ban it. And then a bunch of people who don't give a shit about property rights or deadweight economic losses or the morality of cartels were like, don't take Uber away. And they, cities had a very hard time banning it. And in most cities, it ended up sticking around. And I thought there were decades of secondhand dealers and ideas writing papers and talking about deadweight losses caused by taxi cartels, talking about the immorality of making it illegal for some guy to start selling his taxi services. None of that made a dent in people's beliefs about those things. Yeah. The minute they experienced an alternative, their beliefs shifted. And that's when it clicked that I had the top of the pyramid. Ideas flow down to shape beliefs but experiences flow up to shape beliefs. And I would argue that experiences shape beliefs probably like 80% of the time. And ideas like most people's beliefs, explicit or implicit, are formed in a subconscious way by the things they've experienced. And they might come up with ad hoc, like post hoc arguments to justify them later. 
very few beliefs are shaped by ideas where someone you read things and you consciously considered them and said, wow, this is a good argument. I will now change my belief. Like most people's beliefs about God, for example, are based on their experiences more than sitting down and going, or whatever it is, government. And so that epiphany is what led me to ultimately leave the sort of activist and education world to go be an entrepreneur and say, look, I don't want to just argue with people about government institutions that suck. What if I create one that's better and I sell it to them and they don't need to believe any of my ideology once they've experienced it and say, whoa, this is better. Praxis is better than college. Cool. College isn't very necessary. And if college isn't very necessary, neither is high school. Public school is not that important, right? Like if they taste freedom, then they will want more freedom. Their beliefs will change. They will start to justify freedom in their belief system because they don't want it taken away from them, not because I got them to read Milton Friedman. And so that was a big epiphany that helped put the sort of final piece. Ideas are still very important. They play a part, but I think experience create ways for people to experience alternatives to the state. That's when they'll shift their belief and say, like, show them that it's possible, right? Show them that, that here's a, here's something that's preferable to, you know, whatever shitty service the state is trying to offer. So anyway, and an elephant in the brain, I think is a good example of how people will very quickly change their arguments to justify a belief that they want to hold because it benefits them. It benefits me to use Uber. So now I used to argue that taxi cartels were really important, whatever, because people paid for those medallions. But now I don't want you to take away Uber. So I'll quickly change my arguments and say, oh, well, it's really important, right? Like people will justify them. So you got to give them the experience that they want. While we're on that topic, I just want you to introduce us to your uh, companies. What is Praxis? Yeah. So I started Praxis in 2013 and it's a college alternative. It's a one-year program. You do a six-month boot camp, which is all um, remote on, uh, you know, basically just kicking your ass and, and helping you learn how to be a value creator in the market. And then a six-month apprenticeship at a high-growth startup uh, where we place you um, it's a paid apprenticeship. So what you pay in tuition, you actually earn more than that during the course of the program. And then at the end of the year, 96% of our grads get hired immediately after the program. Um, this is not a technical boot camp, not like a coding boot camp. It's like non-technical kind of hustler people are getting placed in roles like marketing, sales, design, operations at startups. Um, most of them have no degree. They're doing it instead of college. Some people do it after college. Uh, but so I started that in 2013 and kind of been, been growing ever since. And then I actually, um, I moved on to launch my second company uh, a couple of years ago, and now um, Cameron Soresby is the CEO at Praxis. Now I'm still on the board, but um, he's he's cranking away, taking the helm there, and uh, and crash very briefly. It's like we peeled off one very small sliver of this very intense Praxis experience, which is just the process of winning jobs because we found we were getting people who were like 17, 18, 19 with no degree. They were getting hired in jobs that said four-year degree and two to three years of experience required. Yes. And the way they were winning the interviews and getting hired was by not applying through the traditional process, not sending in a resume, not clicking apply and filling out a form. They would find the email of the person there, email them directly a pitch, say, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what I'm all about. Here's what I love about your company. Here, I created something for you. I already made you a project. I, I saw an issue on your website and here's my version of fixing it. I would love an interview. And those get like 80% response rate. And so crash is just that it's helping people, anyone on the job, create video pitches and pitch, uh, pitch employers instead of going through the traditional application process. Um, and so that's, uh, that's my, my full-time gig right now. And again, it's, you know, for me, it's all rooted in my philosophy of, of Liberty, like not being passive, not being like, well, I got my degree by following rules. Now I'll just follow the rules on the job hunt and click submit. And then cross my fingers and my fate is in the hands of some HR bot that's going to scan my resume. Good luck to me. You know, like, no, take the, take the reins. Like you've got value. Now prove it, put together a compelling signal, go out there and, and turn the job hunt into an active process where you're hunting down people. You're sending them stuff that's valuable to them. You're, you're demonstrating your value creation ability. Um, and that's just really empowering, right? If you start your career feeling empowered, like you went out and won that job, that sets your life on a trajectory of personal empowerment and freedom and responsibility versus I followed the rules. I did all this stuff. And then like somebody gave me a job and I just kept following the rules and like life just happens to me. Right. So, um, that's kind of, that's kind of where that all sprung from. 
I love when you were on Tucker Carlson uh, talking about your company crash because Harvard had just said they're not cutting tuition and everything is going to be over Zoom for uh, the next year. So you just went on there and you didn't, you know, take some, uh, you know, community college, which you could have, you know, easily pointed out the flaws and you went to Harvard University and uh, and uh, went up against them. So g great stuff you are uh, doing uh, with those organizations. I want to talk about a couple more essays and books you and I spoke about. What is the main message and thesis of The Call of Christ to Freedom by Stephen Legate? This is a really obscure essay from the old magazine. It was called Liberty Magazine. And uh, it used to come in like a, like, like gray paper, not even glossy magazine paper, like that gray, like really cheap stuff. And a friend of mine, I was like 19 at the time, had it. And he, he was an atheist, but he knew that I was a Christian and he was like, and I was like, libertarian, but like still wrapping my head around some stuff and still like, like I was sort of dragged kicking and screaming to libertarianism and I wasn't yet anarchist and I was still trying to understand some of these arguments. And he's like, Oh, you might like this essay. Now I know nothing else about this guy. I've never been able to find anything else that he's done. Um, it's very hard to come up to find it. I think I linked it on my website, but the essay is basically just laying out why if you are a Christian and you take the example and words of Christ seriously, um, you have no, you have no option other than I would say anarchism. And, and I think Leo Tolstoy uh, took this position and some other, um, but it's not, it's not very common. And essentially, he's making the argument that nonviolence, um, that that if you use the initiation of violence to accomplish your ends, um, that's completely antithetical to everything that Christ stood for. And he uses the example in there that I'll never forget. He has a, a, a quote in there. He says, when the rich man came to Jesus and said, what should I do to be saved? And Jesus said, give all your stuff away to the poor. And the rich man walked away dejected. And then the story ends. And Stephen Legate said, Jesus didn't send, you know, Peter and John after him and say, go, go take your swords and threaten to throw him in prison if he doesn't give his stuff to the poor. He didn't send the Romans after him. He didn't try to enlist. He didn't, he didn't enlist any use of force or law at all. And so the idea that we should mandate good behavior by force of law or prohibit bad behavior by force of law um, is completely antithetical to the message of Christ. And that was really, that really hit me at the time. It was very, it was, it was really important for me, not, not just for myself, but to be able to help explain my libertarian beliefs to people who were coming from a very sort of conservative Christian background. Excellent. Isaiah's Job by Albert J. Knock. Thesis and lesson from Isaiah's Job. This is the one that keeps me encouraged when I'm feeling totally beat down. <laughs> Albert J. Knock is referencing um, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, how he's out there and he just keeps speaking his message and speaking his message and speaking his message. And he's like getting angry and frustrated. He's like, nobody's listening. Nobody's doing anything. And basically God tells him there's a remnant. There's a tiny remnant of people who are listening, who are on the same wavelength as you. You probably never know who they are. You probably never meet them, but your message isn't for the masses. It's for them. And that hits me every time. Like, when you just feel like you're beating your head against the wall and you're like, man, and I mean, you, you know, go on Twitter for five minutes and you start to feel like all the work you're doing at the Libertarian Institute, all this stuff. And you're like, God, even people who call themselves libertarians are out here calling for violence and statism and a bunch of, you know, technocracy and whatever. And you can just start to feel like, what's the point? What's the point of all this? And the message in that essay is it's not for the masses. There's someone out there. There's a hidden audience. You'll probably never meet them but they're listening. It's exactly what they needed to hear. And this was really bolstered when I heard for the first time the story by uh, Larry Reed. And I know you've interviewed him. Um, Larry Reed, who used to be the president of, uh, of FEE, he went to communist Poland when it was still under communism. He smuggled in free market books and he, he did crazy stuff back in the day um, before the Berlin Wall fell. And he was he was there smuggling in books and helping this. There was a whole underground of people who were you know resisting communism and, and this sort of this underground. And he said this, this couple he was with, they'd both been thrown in prison several times and just been out again. They had this underground radio broadcast that they would do every night. And 
they had no idea. He's like, well, you just do it every night. Do you know if people are listening? They're like, idea. Um, you know, do you know how many people are out there are part of the resistance? We don't know. Cause it's too dangerous to like meet in large groups or whatever. So like, we don't really know. We just keep doing it. And he said one night they went on the radio and they said, if you're listening to this and you value freedom, blink your lights. And they looked out the window and all of Warsaw was blinking. <laughs> and it was only like a year later when the communist dictator literally just walked away. He just said, you people are ungovernable and he left. And it was just like peacefully it fell because the underground became bigger than the above ground. And I think that's an incredible story of someone who just kept doing it, kept spreading their message of freedom, not knowing if there was anyone listening. And they actually did get a chance to see that the remnant at that point was actually really huge. But like that Isaiah's job is just so inspirational for me to know that even when I don't know who's out there, even when I post some something and a million people attack it, there's someone, there's someone out there that that message is for. Um, and that's who matters more than sort of winning popularity contests. What is the uh, thesis and main lesson from On Doing Something About It by Frank Shodorov? Man, that's the one that like finally was the nail in the coffin for me of any kind of political activism as a means to um, <laughs> changing changing the world. You know, I'd already started to to toy with this Hayekian idea that politics is a last is a last is a lagging indicator of changes that have already happened in the realm of beliefs and the realm of shifting the Overton window and all those things. Shadaroff's essay is basically like, look, if you play the politicians' game, you always empower the politicians. You make them more important. If you show up even to protest them, you're you're basically assenting to the game that they're trying to play. Ignore them. What if they rented a hall to give a speech and no one showed up? Their mm. power 100% rests in the attention you give them. And that's kind of the 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 theme of that short essay. And I think it's really powerful. I always like to use the analogy like, you know, politics is like a, a big nasty casino. And if you say to me, I hate that casino, it's evil and corrupt. I'm going to put it out of business. I say, how? You say, I'm going to go there and play blackjack every day until I win all their money. That's what, that's what trying to do political activism is to, in, in terms of trying to bring down the state. Now there are, there are ways in which you can use the podium of politics to get a message across because politicians get a lot of attention from the media and whatever, right? Like I'm, I'm not saying that there's no way that you can, like, I think Ron Paul is a good example of this. Like he was never going to win presidency or anything like that. And his policies didn't really get passed as a congressperson, but because the role of politician in our society is also the role of celebrity, Ron Paul as a celebrity spread the message of Liberty in a lot of ways. Right. But not Ron Paul as a political activist, trying to, you know, if he wanted to be good at politics, the only way to do that is to be bad at being principled, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the fact that he was bad at politics is why he was able to have a message. So anyway, that on doing something about it is just like, I would say it's a, it's an argument for political atheism. Excellent. And finally, what is the thesis of and main lesson of how I found freedom in an unfree world by Harry Brown? Oh, baby. Such a good book. It's out of print. So if you want to buy it, it's like super expensive. You got to buy it used on eBay or Amazon sometimes. Um, this is an incredible book. It, it really, I would say it set the stage for all the books that I've written and even the companies that I've built since then. Um, because Harry Brown says, look, you value freedom if you're libertarian and, but you're not living free. And I found myself in this position. When I came across the book, I was very much in this position. I, I valued freedom, but every day I was a slave to the things that I would see on the news because they had the power to dictate my mood. I followed politics and political news and I would get in debates with people on forums and the, the stupid stuff that they decided to cover and the stupid opinions they decided to spout was like enslaving me. It had the power to dictate my moods. And I was not living it. I was angry. I was frustrated. That's not the, that's not the attitude you have when you feel free. Right. And I thought, man, I'm not living free on the individual level. Right. And anytime you find yourself feeling like a victim, Oh, like my boss did this to me. I'm so trapped in this, or I'm trapped in my, you know, this relationship or whatever. You feel like a victim, you feel angry. 
like those are not the signs of someone who's living free. And Harry Brown's book is like, this is how you bring freedom into your own life as an individual. And, and to put it, you know, the, the words of, uh, of, of, um, Leonard Reed, the founder of fee, uh, like being a light, let, letting your freedom be a light is the most, is the best way to attract other people to it, to like live free yourself. Um, yeah, Camus has this quote, let, let, you know, live so free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Yeah. And I, and, and that Harry Brown book, like, whoa, this is how he brings it down. Like really practically, like, okay, how to be free in relationships, how to be free with your personal finances, how to be free with whatever. And it just like translating this concept of freedom and saying, look, what does it matter if I'm trying to make the world free when I'm living like, a, like I'm in shackles yeah. in myself, if I'm a slave to guilt or shame or doubt or the opinions of others or any of those other things. And so that like my self emancipation, realizing that it starts with me, if I can't even be free myself, how can I expect to help, help the world be more free? Um, really, really powerful book, uh, in that regard. Excellent point on the media using uh, repetition as a way of controlling the narrative and thus controlling the mind of the populace. I had a, a former uh, intelligence officer, Chase Hughes, on the show not too long ago, and he said, if I could describe mind control in one word, it would be repetition. So every time we turn on the news, cases are up. There was a shooting. Um, th this uh, th th this terrible war zone happened, uh, and uh, you know the, the U.S. is looking into it. It's like, well, they were supposed to go to war with North Korea, who was supposed to invade Guam. The ozone layer is supposed to be melted. Um, <laughs> they are, S S Saddam, uh, I guess, uh, or, or no, Assad was gassing the Kurds. Uh, Putin uh, hacked our democracy and had a puppet president. It's like, why would I have wasted all that time worrying about something that didn't even come to fruition it, by people incredible. who I don't even respect? Well, and that's where, like, you know, I have a lot of respect for... Um, you know, some of the work that like you guys are doing and we were talking earlier about like Scott Horton doing a lot of stuff on the internet because that takes like another level to be able to immerse yourself in like keeping up on the news of a particular area without letting it take away your freedom, without letting it make you go crazy. So when, after I read Harry Brown's book about 15 years ago, I stopped watching the news and stopped following it all together. I haven't read a newspaper. I mean, I don't know if newspapers even exist, but back then they did, right? I stopped all my subscriptions to newspapers and I haven't followed the news since. Now, in the age of Twitter, I end up seeing more and more news items come across my Twitter feed because people are talking about them um, than I used to. But that just utterly set me free. And I used to think, well, I need to be up on things. I need to understand what's going on because I'm, especially if I'm trying to spread the ideas of liberty, I didn't lose a thing by not knowing. In fact, if anything, it gave me so much freedom when people would be like, oh, so you're like libertarian. Well, then you probably think what, you know, Mitch McConnell did is like some blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, I don't even know who Mitch McConnell is. I don't care about any of that. And I got a smile on my face and then they're baffled. They're like, well, you're so like free. You're like yeah. free from stress and worry. And you don't even care about politics. Like, I don't get it. I'm confused. Then they want to learn more. They want to learn more because you don't, you don't even know what these debates are, let alone take a side in them. And so that was, that was very freeing. But, but, but I think getting to the, to the like master level of freedom is when you can, when you can be in the airport when CNN's playing and it no longer makes your blood boil, boil like, and I'm like closer to that than I used to be. I can, I can see and take in more news and just laugh at the absurdity of it. Um, or even find the silver lining or the hope or have some righteous indignation without letting it ruin my day. But if I immersed myself in it all the time, I think it would just, it would just destroy me again. So, um, it's a dangerous game. I say, if, if you're mad about stuff and the, you know, turn off the fricking news, don't ever like, I mean, I don't think people are watching TV these days, but block fricking block it from Twitter, like work, work so that you never see a single politician's face or hear what they say or hear anyone report about what they say. Try that for a year and tell me everything about your life didn't get better. Yeah, I've tried that a couple times where I've just not been in the mood and I've wanted to sort of throw an argument from intimidation at people. And they'll be like, so, uh, you know, what do you think about uh, John Boehner and Mitch McConnell doing that? And I go, um, I'm actually not part of the uh, religion of statism, so I don't uh, focus on what the high priests of that religion uh, discuss. And th they don't even know how to respond to that. And I go, it's just the belief that uh, this group writing words on paper puts a positive obligation on 330 million strangers on what they have to fund and what they have to do. 
And they're like, they're like waiting for me to say what MSNBC was saying or what Fox was saying. And it totally disarms them and, you know, sort of plants this seed. When I think of, you know, people being un, uh, free in their mind. So it's not just, well, no one was initiating violence against Harry Brown uh, on September 12th, 2001. But he was so intellectually free that he wrote a book. No, oh, gosh, I can't even remember the article. The day after 9-11, he yes. wrote, what did you expect? He goes, well, the media, of course, covers up uh, the crimes of the state while focusing on the petty crime, creating, you know, a, a fake enemy at home. And, uh, you know, we've invaded countries like Libya. There's been a blockade on Iraq for a decade. Bill Clinton was bombing them uh, at uh, an average of two to three times a week for 10 and years. Pe and people today don't realize the balls you had to have to write that article on September 12th. Oh, my I mean, gosh. I was five and I blood. remember. Yeah. Everybody Le was a patriot. Right. Bush yeah. Bush had a 91% approval rating or something. Literally like 90%, which is so typical of the state to fail at their most basic thing and then get like the best. <laughs> <laughs> get the, it, no, it, it's, mean, like, it's like it's like right me. after Kim Kardashian gets like, robbed in Paris. I have the best security ever. <laughs> no, I, I mean it was yeah. like the the palpable energy and I was like coming away from conservatism and like early on libertarianism at that point. But even me, the minute that happened, I had this thing rise up in me. Like I wanted blood. I wanted vengeance. I was, yeah. I was an Amer, all these collectivist ideas, all the like dangerous, dangerous stuff. Now there's a part of like any tragedy where you have solidarity with humanity. It's mm -hmm. mixed with a good impulse, but this other vindictive patriotic, military can do no wrong. Like that shit just snuck. I mean, it was everywhere. So Harry Brown definitely, uh, he practiced, he, he lived it, man. He was not afraid. Check the description below for IsaacMorehouse.com. Isaac, thank you for coming on. And thanks to everyone for watching Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Thanks so much, man.